Hello, I'm writer Philippa Gregory, and I ought to have a certain honour attributed to me. That is to say, I must be spared and born with, because I am a weaker vessel of a frail heart, inconstant, and with a word soon stirred to wrath. Lord, I can't tell you how soon I'm stirred to wrath, especially by an old clergyman telling women what they are. That was William Tyndale, defining women once and for all in 1525. In my new book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, I look at the women we don't know, everyday normal women, who are indeed nothing like William Tyndale describes. But centuries on, he's had the final word on women, and the word is weaker vessel. With me are Dr Grace Heaton, stipendiary lecturer at Mansfield College, Oxford, and the Reverend Richard Coles, the best-selling novelist and former vicar. Hello to you both, and thank you for joining me. Hello, Philippa. Hello. But first, let's step back into the past. This is what William Tyndale thinks of us. Oh, just you and me, Grace, not you, Richard. (laughs) Normal women are weaker vessels. For the woman is a weak creature, not endued with like strength and constancy of mind. Therefore, they be the sooner disquieted, and they be the more prone to all weak affections and dispositions of mind, more than men be, and lighter they be, and more vain in their fantasies and opinions. The woman ought to have a certain honour attributed to her, that is to say, she must be spared and born with, the rather for that she is the weaker vessel, of a frail heart, inconstant, and with a word soon stirred to wrath. The Bible didn't always call women a weak vessel. Women were honoured founders of the early church. The Virgin Mary could intercede with God in a global emergency. Even normal women could intercede with God. During the Black Death in 1349, there were so few priests and so many people dying that Ralph of Shrewsbury, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, ordered dying Christians to confess their sins to a layman if no priest was available, and even to a woman. The plague has left many parish churches without parson or priest to care for their parishioners. Therefore, to provide for the salvation of souls, you should at once publicly command and persuade all men that if they are on the point of death and cannot secure the services of a priest, then they should make confession to each other. If no man is present... Then, even to a woman. It was the last time that a woman would ever hear confession and absolve a dying man. The Roman Catholic Church still does not allow women to act as confessors, and the Church of England didn't allow women to officiate as priests until 600 years later. Is it true today that anyone can hear a dying person's confession and give absolution? You don't need to be ordained. Does that mean we're all equally able to speak and even channel God? Richard? Well, depends who you talk to, of course, actually, (laughs) Philip. But the church being an institution mindful of its powers and its privileges does everything it can to reserve such powers and privileges on its own terms. And so all things being equal, then the church in its various denominations would expect you to find a priest in those traditions in which confession and absolution is a thing, either generally or individually. However, the church has an extremely useful custom or doctrine called Ecclesia Supplet, the church provides, so that in circumstances when it is unable to exercise its normal powers and privileges, anything goes if it says so. So, for example, in the case of the Black Death, In my own parish, my predecessor was one of the 50% of the English clergy who died in the Black Death. I'm sure people in extremists would use whatever means were to hand to reconcile themselves to their fate. And of course, I don't want to particularly preempt the conversation, but in the Anglican Communion, the first woman to be ordained priest was in Hong Kong, which was then occupied by the Japanese. So when circumstances require it, the church reserves the right to extend its rights and privileges or withdraw its rights and privileges according to its requirements and needs. 
Grace, you've studied the Hong Kong uh, ordination. Tell us about it. So in 1944, the Bishop of Hong Kong ordained a woman called Florence Lee Timoy. And this ordination is often held up by generations of women as a kind of point of inspiration in the 70s and 80s. They look back to Florence's legacy. But it's really important to say that with this ordination, this wasn't a kind of feminist act. This wasn't the Bishop of Hong Kong extolling the virtues of women's ordination. This arose out of need. And the need was that there was no one who could administer to the Macanese community to which Florence Lee Timoy served as a deaconess. So he thought it was right and proper that she should be ordained so that she could properly share the sacraments with the communicants of the Macanese community. But it's also worth saying that in the aftermath of World War II, there was a strong backlash against the Bishop of Hong Kong's decision to ordain Florence Lee Timoy. The Church Times had a massive front page headline which said Bishop in Insurrection. And in 1946, Florence was forced to give up her priestly licence. Was she defrocked? Yes. Wow. Women's status with God was inferior to men in the eyes of the early church, but we were never known as weaker vessels. This is the Whitcliffe Bible of 1382-95, to before William Tyndale got to work on the verses 1 Peter 37. Also men dwell together, and by knowing give ye honour to the woman's frailty as to the more feeble, and as to even heirs of grace and of life, that your prayers be not hindered. The woman is more feeble, but she is equally to inherit. This is an even heir to grace and life. Two centuries later, William Tyndale introduced for the first time the phrase, a weaker vessel. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them as men of knowledge, giving honour unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel, even as they which are heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not interrupted. It's such a bad bit of translation. It's simply not there. William Tyndale just invented it and changed women from being even heirs to an also heir. It was a huge and extraordinary alteration by Tyndale, and this became the text from which all other Bibles descend, even the famously poetic and beloved King James Version. But he didn't stop there. The weaker vessel slid into his book, The Obedience of Christian Man. And now, God knew what the weaker vessel contained. God, which created woman, knoweth what is in that weak vessel, as Peter calleth her, and hath therefore put her under the obedience of her husband to rule her lusts and wanton appetite. By 1563, what had been a flowery bit of translation, actually an addition, had crept into the accepted official Elizabethan sermon, the homily of matrimony. Every parish priest in every church of England was ordered to preach the new definition of women to his congregation. She is the weaker vessel, of a frail heart, inconstant and with a word soon stirred to wrath. A weak creature, not endued with like strength and constancy of mind. Therefore, they be the sooner disquieted, and they be the more prone to all weak affections and dispositions of mind, more than men be, and lighter they be, and more vain in their fantasies and opinions. I mean, it's very insulting, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> not to put, not to put too, too strong a point on it. It's just insulting, isn't it? Yes, it's really interesting. As I was listening to those various quotes, I was thinking about how much scripture and biblical interpretation ties into medical understandings and how they intersect during the early modern period. So during the early modern period, you have medical understandings deriving from Greek authors such as Aristotle, Hippocrates and Galen, and they understand the the body as being comprised of four humours, which were thought to have characteristics. So men were thought to be hot and dry and full of blood. And this made them more rational and stronger and more morally superior. And women, in contrast, were thought to be cold and moist and phlegmy. And this made them morally inferior. It made them more prone to lust and intellectually inferior as well. So it's interesting where we see that kind of intersection between scripture and men 
medical understandings of the day informing and corroborating one another. Richard, do you have any sense of the early church here? We are 1500s as misogynistic. Oh, definitely. But it's a complicated story. I think the misogyny with which authority has used scripture to uh, define its own and understand its own powers was actually not there from the beginning. I think it's interesting if you think about how the churches first established themselves in its first expansion in that end of the Roman Empire. It was in households, and it was often in households where the take-up was with the woman of the household rather than the man, and that the woman of the household might gather with the slaves of the household for the Eucharist to share Holy Communion, as we would call it, experiencing for the first time the extraordinary novelty of radical equality in Christ. My sense is that that theme never entirely disappeared, and that even though a patriarchal church asserts its patriarchal identity, you will find constantly, even in the Middle Ages, even when people like Wycliffe or Tyndale were at their, or John Knox were at their most vociferous in denouncing the inferior, or proclaiming, insisting on the inferior status of women, there are all sorts of women doing all sorts of interesting and powerful things. The abbesses, for example, of Anglo-Saxon England, people like in the convents, Hildegard of Bingen. Um, it would be a very rash man indeed who were to call them a frailer vessel. I think they would um, <laughs> soon find themselves put very firmly in their place. It's extraordinary to me that there's a queen on the throne when Tyndale is saying these things about women. The homily who tried to persuade men not to beat their wives, but pointed out that they were often very badly behaved. Honest natures will sooner be retained to do their duties rather by gentle words than by stripes. And women were told how to apologise for defiance. Let them acknowledge their follies and say, My husband, so it is, that by my anger I was compelled to do this or that, forgive it me, and hereafter I will take better heed. As St. Paul expresseth it in this form of words, let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the woman, as Christ is the head of the church. Tyndale advised that if a husband was violent to his wife, she must patiently bear it, both for the improvement of her marriage and for the order of society. Even so, think you, if thou canst suffer an extreme husband, thou shalt have a great reward therefore. But if by such fortune thou chancest upon such a husband, take it not too heavily, but suppose thou that thereby is laid up no small reward hereafter, and in this lifetime no small commendation to thee, if thou canst be quiet. William Tyndale, as a Protestant, supported the Reformation, the end of the Roman Catholic Church as the National Church in Britain, and the destruction of the great religious houses for women, like Sion and Whitby, nunneries which offered a career structure for women architects, artists, scholars, accountants and land managers. Nunneries, convents and abbeys were closed down at the Reformation, throwing more than 2,000 women out of their homes and into a secular world. It says everything that this is generally known as the dissolution of the monasteries. But while men could transfer into the new Church of England, women had nowhere to go. Grace, was there respect, even equality, for women in the pre-Reformation Church, if not in this world, then at least in the next? Yes, so I think there's two points to that which is really interesting. Firstly, if we think about the Reformation, we can think about it very broadly as pre-Reformation, religion is about what you do. Post-Reformation, religion is about what you believe. So pre-Reformation, if we think about some of the points that Richard was making earlier about these really wonderful women, Hildegard Bingham, we can also think perhaps about women mystics like Julianne of Norwich or Marjorie Kemp, Julianne of Norwich particularly is such a fascinating, interesting woman who in many ways expressed her own religious agency within the confines of the kind of society in which she lived in. She chose to withdraw from secular society and live a life of religious devotion in Norwich Cathedral in a cell and people often came to her for advice. So in that way, we can see within the confines of that society that she was exerting religious agency. The point about souls, I think, is really fascinating. So. 
St. Paul writes in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And basically, my understanding of that is that souls don't have sex, only bodies do. They're not male or female. So when we enter the kingdom of Christ, when we enter paradise, the distinction of sex falls away and souls are equal. But in terms of where they are living, where the bodies are living, this is a highly stratified society and it's a highly sexist society. Richard, do you have a sense that women mattered more before the Reformation to the church than to the Church of Rome than they did after the Reformation to the Church of England? Well, I think because the Church of Rome supported a system in which women could live conventionally, then I think there were opportunities for women to get together and do some remarkable, creative and original and innovative sort of things, always with under the authority of the church, although there's often an interesting tension. Well, for example, in Anglo-Saxon England, you have someone like Ethelreda of Ely, who was a royal princess who became a nun and an abbess and had powers which would be comparable to that of a bishop or an abbot. Um, immensely powerful women in religious orders who were able from within the religious orders to not only influence their lives and the lives of the people with whom they lived, but to export that into the church and very much re-energise its thinking and literally correspond with kings and emperors and popes. Women heads of the big religious houses reported directly to the pope, just like the bishops did. There's some evidence, although it's disputed, that women abbesses were mitred, would wear a mitre like a bishop or a male abbot. And there's even a suggestion from some that they might even have ordained people. Now, there's a spanner to throw into the works that kind of spirals across several centuries to land in our, in our own time. I think the Reformation, interestingly, closed down opportunities for women to get together and organise themselves in that sort of way. I think what's kind of interesting, especially with the mystics, people like Marjorie Kemp or Christina the Astonishing, who's one of my favourite of all saints, is that as their opportunities to express themselves and exercise their power in the world diminished, they turned themselves into the sort of battlefield of ideas and the assertion of their individuality. They would lock themselves away, become anchoresses, retreat from the physical structures of the church and the world, but create within that their own sort of domain, if you see what I mean, and speak out of that. Widows often would have independent means, they'd inherit from their husbands, so they'd have the money to enable them to do that, to find a sort of niche, if you like, where you could occupy your own territory and speak more or less on your own terms. And the church had to accommodate that, especially when those women got a great following for wisdom, for insight, for holiness, for piety. But you can see fairly quickly church authorities, when that gets a bit too organised, cracking down on it quite firmly. Coming up in part two, as women enter universities and professional training, why don't they enter the church? Welcome back. I'm Philippa Gregory, and this is Normal Women Are Weaker Vessels. With me today are novelist, former vicar and former pop star, the Reverend Richard Coles, and Dr Grace Heaton, historian of the ordination of women. Together, we're talking about women's place in the Church of England. After the First World War, women won the right to vote and so might become MPs. They came to be seen in positions of authority and leadership. It was only logical that they should enter the church, and in 1920, the Church of England Synod discussed the status of deaconesses and the question of women becoming priests. And they came to an easy conclusion. No. The religious instinct and the sexual instinct were too close to be allowed to be brought into close contact. There were differences not only in the physical, but in the psychical constitution of women, which rendered the office of regular public preaching unsuitable. Grace, do you think there's a link between the campaign for women's suffrage and calls for women's ordination? 
Certainly. So in 1909, we see the founding of a specifically Anglican organisation campaigning for the vote for women called the Church League of Women's Suffrage. And this attracts lots of Anglican women, but also lots of Anglo-Catholic male clergy members support this cause. And this really opens up the conversation. And when we're saying Anglo-Catholics, we're meaning people inside the Church of England, but who respect and use the rituals of the Roman Catholic Church, what some people would call high church. Yes, and really interestingly, when it gets to 1919, where some women over the age of 30 with certain property qualifications obviously get the vote, the Church League for Women's Suffrage transforms into an organisation called the League of the Church Militant. And at that point, they're actively campaigning and, as you've noted, lobbying uh, the Lambeth Conference of 1920 to discuss the question of women's ordination. But it's worth noting that a lot of those Anglo-Catholic supportive clergy members subsequently leave the organisation when it comes to the League of the Church Militant and is actively then campaigning for women's ordination. But that's a step too far for the Anglo-Catholics. If I could add to that, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, who was perhaps the most significant and important architect of Roman Catholic doctrine and belief, he's one of the great schoolmen of the 13th century. Thomas Aquinas, who was drawing on Aristotelianism, did think that there was an inferiority of souls in women. It was a complicated one, but he thought there were sort of degrees of souls. And he did argue that women were somehow lacking a completeness that men in ensoulment enjoyed. And that's, I think, written in perhaps mysteriously or covertly or clandestinely into some of the debate about that now. The early calls for women to become priests were easily pushed back And 40 years later, in 1966, the Church of England made a full report on the possibility of women becoming priests and discovered that it was not possible. It would be contrary to the tradition of the Church from the time of the Apostles. If it is to be maintained that that tradition is wrong, it has to be demonstrated either that the Apostles failed to divine or to implement the intention of Christ if he intended women to partake in the priestly ministry, or that Christ erred in not declaring this to be his intention. And there's something about female vicars that are just, well, downright pagan. Female priesthoods belong to the nature religions, in which human nature is sensed to be merely part of society, society part of nature, and nature itself divine. The Christian church rooted in the biblical view of God and his relation to the world, has, without question, adopted a male priesthood. And who's going to do the washing up? A female priesthood would present practical difficulties. A woman could hardly fulfil simultaneously her responsibilities as a parish priest and as a married woman. Problems would arise at times of pregnancy and during the periods when the prior claim upon her time and attention would be as a mother to her children. There would be considerable complications in the relationships between husband and wife in cases where both were in priest's orders. Ladies, ladies, you have better things to do than compete with male priests. Women have their own kind of ministry in offering the specific gifts of the feminine sex to the furthering of Christ's work on earth. These opportunities should be extended. Much of their value would be lost if women were drawn into the ordained priesthood. It's easy and unfair to laugh at the church of the 1960s. Is this document just a sign of the times, more than a sign of the church, Grace? Yeah, that's really an interesting question. And it's worth saying that this document does, it becomes somewhat outdated quite quickly because by 1968, the Global Anglican Communion at the Lambeth Conference decides that there are no valid theological objections to women's ordination and asks all of the members of the Global Anglican Communion to make their own decision on this. And then we start to see members of the Anglican Communion ordaining women throughout the 1970s. So abroad, they're able to ordain women, but at home in the Church of England, they're holding the line against ordination and emphasising other ways that women can serve the church. So those against women's ordination, 
they were basically arguing that if you focus completely on the priesthood, you overlook all of these other services that women give to the church. They're on uh, general synod as representatives of their local communities. They're organising flowers. They're reading in church services. And this focus, this fixation on the priesthood is just overlooking that. Equally, on the other side, we get women in favour of women's ordination saying, actually, think of all the things that women can bring to the priesthood. And actually, if women enter holy orders in the priesthood, then we get a complete priesthood, which is representative of all of humanity. And other women, again, would take that even further and say that women were particularly well suited to dealing with other women and the kind of pastoral concerns of other women. So it's interesting how those ideas work both ways. Richard. I think what's different, though, it's about power. It's through priesthood and through episcopacy, being made bishops, that people exercise power in the church. So you can say your flower guild is marvellous. You can say your mother's union is marvellous. You can say messy church run by women in your parish church is marvellous, but it is not in synod just laity who make decisions. There's the house of clergy, there's the house of bishops. And so if you want to exercise authority, you need to occupy those positions. And surely this reflects the long-held belief that women are simply not fit for positions of power. Women can do the flowers, they can even read, but they can't decide policy and handle the enormous land holdings and wealth. That's for men. Yeah, I mean, I think the church, one way of putting it is that the church reflects the standards of its time. It's been around for a long time. Its inheritance is ancient, and much of that inheritance is patriarchal, and it reflects those views. But I think it also has to be conceded that the church has largely been the author of patriarchy and misogyny too. And is it fair to ask the church to modernise, even when that means equality, is one of the strengths of the church that it has these ancient traditions? But I'm actually really like that about churches, is that they're not tied to the sort of rapid electoral cycles that most secular powers are tied to. It's a constant complaint, isn't it, of short termism that we never really... Now, if you're computing in terms of centuries, eons, um, uh, the whole of recorded time itself and the creation of the universe, you calculate rather differently. And there are lots of things the church holds to and upholds and continues to proclaim, which I think are really good. But one of the values it proclaims is justice and truth, I think. And if you can establish the case for women's ordination on the grounds of justice and truth, then the church should get its act together and be in the vanguard of calling for it, as indeed it has. The debate, however, is live and continues. Great. So we're talking about the difference between, in a sense, timeless values, Mm -hmm. justice and truth, Mm -hmm. and actually how they are experienced in in now in the modern world. Mm. So it's really interesting, that idea of justice and truth, I think, is absolutely pivotal to the campaign for women's ordination. And those who were at the forefront of pushing for women's ordination were at pains to emphasise that this was an issue of theological justice. This wasn't women's lib kind of infiltrating the church. This wasn't um, feminist, strident, angry women trying to impose secular values onto a sacramental matter. This was an issue of theology. And I think within that, what's really interesting is... um, There's an organisation that emerges in 1979 called the Movement for the Ordination of Women. And their first leader was a man called Stanley Booth Clibben, who was the Bishop of Manchester. And he and his wife, Anne, had been long-standing supporters of women's ordination. And one of the first things he says publicly about the campaign for women's ordination is that those who were campaigning for it were following where they were divinely led. So it's this idea that God isn't kind of detached from the world. God is working in the world. And perhaps if we look to secular society... Maybe God's working there and maybe we can see where we should be going. Can it be possible that God is working through feminists? Mm, Quite possibly. In 1975, the Church of England reversed policy to announce that actually there were no fundamental objections to women being ordained as priests. The motion was completely rejected the next year, the same year that the Sex Discrimination Act made it illegal to close posts to women. The church promptly gained exemption from the act and still, amazingly to me, is still exempt from sex equality legislation. But that wasn't the end of the matter. Here's Margaret Webster, organiser of the movement for the ordination of women, at a controversial communion service held at a hall on church house premises in central London in 1986. 
Well, we have been saying for some time that celebrations by women priests are taking place in private houses, in college bedrooms, in places like that that are not consecrated buildings. Those will certainly not stop. What is becoming more difficult to contain is the celebrations within actual churches, which is what we didn't do. People are crying out to experience the ministry of a woman who is a priest. Grace, a woman actually celebrating the Eucharist without the permission of the church, this was quite an extreme demonstration, wasn't it? And the movement has retaliated by saying they may well try to persuade a friendly parish priest to allow them to use his church for a woman to celebrate Holy Communion. The church house incident where Rev Joyce Bennett um, celebrated a Eucharist for the, at the AGM for the movement for the ordination of women is an example of this kind of radical activism of trying to demonstrate to the church actively that the campaign for women's ordination was supportive of women's ministry. And it's interesting, if we think about the context in which this activism is taking place in the aftermath of 68, where we see student riots and mass protests, sometimes I think when we look at the activism undertaken by supporters of women's ordination, even the radical activists, it can feel quite timid. And ideas of exchanging religious language, so talking about God in the feminine, talking about mother and sister rather than Lord, father and master, maybe doesn't seem so transgressive from our 21st century perspective. It seems that the battle over female priests in the Anglican faith in Britain is going to escalate. For those people who were taking part in this activism, it felt revolutionary and it felt transgressive to go against, in many ways, their fathers in God, to go against bishops and clergy members who were opposed. The opposite case was made in the same year, 1986. Women Against the Ordination of Women took out an advertisement in Church Times. Jesus Christ chose men for his 12 apostles. He did not hesitate to break the conventions of his time and would have included women if he thought it right. He did not. Are we to alter what he decided? Some women say they ache to be a woman priest. An ache is not a theological reason for doing anything, let alone fundamentally altering the nature of the Christian ministry as given us by Jesus Christ or the truth which God the Father perfectly revealed in him. These opponents of women's ordination did not see themselves as anti-feminist. I'm a feminist of sorts, but this transcends feminism. Different rules apply to the church. Women can be doctors and teachers, but they cannot be priests because both scripture and tradition show God gave that right only to men. They saw themselves as defenders of the faith. This is the biggest event since the Reformation, We don't want the Church of England to become an isolated sect, as it will if women become ordained. They believed women already had an important role within the Church. Women's ordination has distracted us from our true task of spreading the word. As such, it is the work of the devil. And others had more worldly concerns. Women don't mind working for men, but they dislike being subordinate to other women. These are women who are excelling in the secular world. There's women who have doctorates. Margaret Hewitt, who's one of the leading figures within Women Against the Ordination of Women, works as a reader for women's studies and she challenges misogyny in her own workplace regularly. But there's just a disconnect. These ideas of equality, of secular feminism, just cannot translate to um, the church Richard, do you remember this debate from the time that you were in the church? Oh, yes. I mean, it's a a familiar debate and a debate which refreshes itself in one form. And I'm very struck listening to that about how many of those arguments have been marshaled against equality for LGBT people, arguments in the sex, identity and gender debates and so on. I mean, I think that it's a very interesting one. And I think there are people who, in good faith and with integrity, uphold those arguments which do not permit the ordination of women to priesthood and episcopacy and so on. I think that can be, that can be done in good faith. But I do think there are counter-arguments. This notion that Christ chose only male apostles and therefore that's a model for how the rest of the church 
should be organised, neglects that the apostle to the apostles was Mary Magdalene. To whom did Jesus entrust the news of the resurrection? It was to a woman who came running out of the garden and told everybody else about it. What do you think, Richard, swung the decision of the church in the end to allow women's ordination? I think it became an idea that was harder and harder to resist. And as that happened, those people who most vigorously wanted to resist it kind of retreated into little fortresses. I was at theological college around this period, well, it was after, in fact, the legislation had been voted through, where it was a sort of last redoubt of those who in the Anglo-Catholic tradition of the church were unable to accept or even to countenance the notion of women's ordained ministry. And you had a sense that it was a sort of fortress, that they kind of put up the drawbridge and that they talked to themselves, that they saw themselves as a sort of beleaguered minority, a faithful remnant surrounded by a sea of heresy. And that charged them and energised them and ironically gave them enormous energies for proclaiming their particular gospel to the church. And it was extremely divisive within that community. So there were people who I would have considered and still consider friends who would take a conservative view on this thing. And it became conversations that were impossible, tears and tantrums, the slamming of doors. Um, uh, One of the reasons why the kind of hothouse atmosphere of theological colleges can sometimes be so disagreeable. Grace, from your study of the history of women's ordination, do you think there was one thing that swung the balance at that moment? So I think... It's worth, as as we've noted, this is a really long campaign and throughout the 20th century there's been a concerted effort to change hearts and minds. So if we go back very quickly to the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act, what's really interesting about that act when it was going through Parliament, a number of MPs reached out to women involved in the campaign for women's ordination and said, look, do you want us to, to challenge this and the church's exemption from it? And those who were involved in that campaign at that time said no because they didn't want to win this via kind of legal battles and technicalities. They recognised that this was something that had to be won in kind of in a hearts and minds that was so important to the cause. And it's worth noting the various opinion polls throughout the 1980s, which show that 80% of members of the Church of England were in favour of women's ordination. So we can think of both those in favour of women's ordination who are actively campaigning for it and those who were actively campaigning against it are both minority groups within the church. Actually, most Anglicans are just happy that there's someone up there every weekend administering the Eucharist and is able to support them in times of need. Finally, in 1994, the first 32 women priests were ordained in Bristol Cathedral. More than 400 male clergy left the church in protest. This is John Draper reporting for ITN. Rehearsals for today's historic ordination of women priests. But there's the threat of disharmony as objectors to the 32 women joining the Anglican priesthood warn they'll interrupt the service at Bristol Cathedral. This morning in the city, one group put up a poster saying the Church of England had been murdered by what they called the blasphemous parody of ordination. You cannot have a church which claims to be part of Catholic Christendom, which has flung back in God's faith his gift of priesthood and substituted for it a man-made ministry with priestesses. And of course, what is being created today in Bristol Cathedral is not new priests, but it is a new order of transvestites, women dressed up as priests. 20 years later, in 2014, women were allowed to become bishops. Libby Lane was the first. She was consecrated at York Minster by the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu. Brothers and sisters, you've heard how great is the charge that Libby is ready to undertake. And you've heard her declarations. Is it now your will that she should be ordained? With respect, Your Grace, I ask to speak on this absolute impediment, please. Today, we are assembled to consecrate Reverend Libby Lane as Bishop in the Church of God. Despite that cry of protest, no, not in the Bible, Libby Lane was consecrated, becoming Bishop of Stockport. She's now Bishop of Derby, one of seven female diocesan bishops, out of a total of 42. 
I can remember watching Libby Lane, and a little part of me thought, oh, at first, there's a woman dressed up as a bishop. It was a completely unwilled, unconscious reaction. And then she was consecrated bishop, and I never thought it again. I just saw a woman bishop, and it was fine. In my own parish, in my own time, I had a woman curate, and she became the first woman to exercise a priestly ministry in our church in a thousand years. And it was just fine. It was just Jane doing her job. And I think it was facts on the ground in the way that perhaps consolidated the victories of those arguments in some ways. But even now, there are all sorts of get-out clauses and special conditions. 430 priests resigned from the Church of England rather than see a woman represent God in their church and claimed that their wages should be paid and they compensated for loss of their job and, in some cases, their houses. The church estimated that it would cost £24 million to compensate the priests who left and paid compensation, even to those priests who stepped straight into a job in the Roman Catholic Church and parishes who objected to a woman vicar could refuse to have one. So a parish could enter into resolutions, for example, and it could resolve that it would never accept a woman as an incumbent, that it would never that it would accept a woman as a preacher but not someone presiding at the mass, for example, or that it would not accept the episcopal ministry of a woman bishop or indeed a man who had consecrated women. So depending on the degree of concern that people had about whether the sacramental integrity was affected by the presence of women in it, if you see what I mean, you could find some sort of refuge from it. And if you wanted alternative Episcopal oversight, then there were a number of bishops appointed who would not, could not be accused of having been involved in ordaining women in whose orders you could have faith if that... I mean, I'm really... Con- There's a very awful idea about taint here. Mm. There's this notion that somehow a bishop's or a priest's sacramental efficacy could be tainted by connection to a woman doing something a woman shouldn't do. But nevertheless, provision had to be made to get the measures over the line. And there are still people, although very small numbers, in fact, who I think out of a total of 13,000 parishes, it was fewer than 400, I think, accepted those measures. But they did. They would have difficulty with a bishop who had ordained a woman, not even that she was delivered to their parish to be their priest, but elsewhere in another time he had laid hands on and consecrated her. So he's then unacceptable because of that. Yes, it would have been felt that any involvement in the ordination of women to priesthood would so compromise the integrity of their own sacramental efficacy that you couldn't have faith in the reliability of whatever they did in Uh, on their own merits. Yes, I just wanted to come in here. So this all, for me, I think, and the women that I've spoken to when I've been conducting my research comes back to women's bodies and the idea that women's bodies pollute and defile sacred spaces. And that has really interesting ramifications when they then go on to be priests. So I've had a number of interviewees have told me things like their parishioners would ask them, please, can you tell me if you're menstruating? Because if you're menstruating, I don't want to take the Eucharist from you. And one of my interviews, she was laughing when she told me the story. And she says, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to wave a flag to kind of signify you can't take the Eucharist from me? I'm menstruating. And so even in the kind of 80s and 90s, women's bodies are still so central to this debate. Although I would say the language surrounding this becomes a lot more covert. In the 1920s, in particular the Lambeth Conference, you see the language of women's bodies being defiling sacred spaces. That sentiment is still there in the latter 20th century, but the language shifts. I can remember it being sort of demonstrated physically. I was at a service once where a woman priest gave a blessing and a male priest who upheld that notion of taint, and this is so absurd, stood behind a pillar, Mm. lest the unholy rays emanating from this unorthodox blessing should uh, make him feel poorly or something. I mean, it really was. and, And of course, that sounds absurd, but I think it tells you something that there is a visceral component to this sometimes. And I think that is a reaction to a fear of women's bodies, particularly a fear of women's reproductive bodies that is very deep and dark and mysterious and not easily raised to a discussion. And that visceral fear also has, in some cases, manifested in very physical expressions. So a number of my interviews have told really horrible stories about being spat at, 
when they've been administering or they've been bitten as they've been given the Eucharist. So it really comes through in quite physical ways. These are obviously very much exceptions to the rule and not everyone has experienced this by any means, but it is there. I am extraordinarily shocked at the thought of somebody biting a priest's hand when she's giving the Eucharist. I can tell you, Philip, I once went to uh, Walsingham, which is a, a pilgrimage site in this country and, and very significant to people of the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Walsingham does not accept women's priestly ministry at the moment because I think it reflects the preferences of many of the people who are most closely associated with it. But it used to be kind of open to all comers before this became such a divisive issue. And I went there once and there was a woman in a dog collar and I saw her being spat on by a young cleric. And uh, I thought, I'm never going there again. The hostility is not decreasing as people hoped it would once women were ordained and once they were seen to be working as priests and even bishops. I think there was the hope and expectation on the part of those people who drafted these very sort of um, cunning pieces of legislation was that it would contain the tension enough to get the issue over the line and then everyone would calm down and accept change. I don't think that's actually happened. I think the resistance to it has, in fact, probably intensified its efforts. But there comes a point, I think, where is a woman a priest or not a priest? Is a woman a bishop or not a bishop? If your diocesan bishop is a woman, can she really not exercise her ministry in parts of that diocese which accept only the oversight of an alternative, you know, an Episcopal visitor, a flying bishop? You don't have to test these two far to sense the absurdity of them. And I think, well, what happens? You either resolve it or there is a parting of the ways or a sort of falling apart, a crumbling into uh, uh, crumbs. And how do you feel about the fact that the church is still exempt from the Sex Equality Act? I mean, that it seems to me absurd, but I'm not a, a serving clergyman and I'm not a lawyer. Richard. Well, I mean, uh, I can quite understand why the church would want to reserve to itself the powers to decide its character and constitution. But when its character and constitution seems to contravene a fundamental matter of truth and injustice, well, then I think they should be brought into alignment. And I think that's a, a pretty general view. It's just, I mean, just don't hold your breath. But Grace, wouldn't any institution want to have complete control over its character and constitution? I mean, anywhere would, you know, but what we say in the Equality Act is that you simply can't be prejudiced against women because we as a society don't want you to do that. Yes, and I guess it's it's worth noting it's not just the church fingers, all religious institutions are covered under this. So it's a much wider, wider issue. But yes, you would you would think that equality for all would be something that all religions would want. Looking ahead, do you think that, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church is going to change? (laughs) Uh, I mean, I would hesitate to, to try to explain the Roman Catholic Church not being part of it. It's very hard to see. I mean, John Paul II, who was a massively influential pope, did everything he could short of stating infallibly that women could never be ordained to the priesthood. So there's a long way to go. But I really don't know. I mean, there's lively, lively groups within the Roman Catholic Church seeking the ordination of women to the priesthood. But I think it's a long way off. Yes, I was raised Catholic and I find that very hard to hard to see that that would be in the near future. I think if there was going to be a change, I could see Catholic priests being married before you see women being ordained. I think that's the shift, and I think that would have to come first. And I think also the energy in the Christian church at the moment, we're so used to, if we're part of, if we live in Britain, for example, of seeing the church as a fading institution that's now sort of circling the drain before it's flushed away forever. But actually, the church is very vigorous and very growing in lots of places. There are around 2 billion Christians in the world, and more and more of them are actually being evangelized through conservative evangelical ministers and doctrine and you'll find deep profound opposition to women's priesthood within those circles all on slightly different sorts of grounds so i don't think we can kind of celebrate victory at our end of the spectrum once and for all because i who knows what the future will bring but it's not a settled matter across the church spectrum not for the first time in women's history what looks like a clear step forward for women 
prompts a pushback, as you say. Richard, it's not a victory. It's more a fudge. Richard Coles, Grace Heaton, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on the Normal Women podcast, Normal Women are beyond definition. I'll be joined by trans non-binary TV presenter and A&E medic, Dr. Ronks Ikaria, and Cordelia Fine, philosopher of science, psychologist, and author of the award-winning Testosterone Rex, to look at how the stereotypes of womanhood fit nobody. Hope you can join us. All of the themes explored in this series can be found in my book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell the normal women in your life about it. Hope you'll be joining me soon. Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, published by William Collins, is also available as an audiobook. There are links to both in the show notes. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of Claire Corbett, James Good, Melanie Gutteridge and Rufus Wright, and includes original music composed by Juliet Pochin. The producer is Julia Johnson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design is by Tom Birchall. The commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.